Music's been great so far this morning, hasn't it? Now if I just don't blow it. No, thank you for coming and singing this morning. And Cindy, thank you for playing as always. Um, Y'all have blessed us. The title of the message today is The Display of Worship. I want to ask you a question. What do you think about when you hear the word worship? No, I didn't. Can you hear me now? Okay. It's like a commercial. What do you think about when you hear worship? I was serving as a youth pastor at a church, and somebody asked me, do you all have worship on Sunday nights? And I said, some Sunday nights we do. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we have a church service every Sunday night. <laughs> sometimes worship takes place. I think sometimes we have misconceptions about worship. Worship is not just about music. That is a favorite part of worship. But I've actually heard preachers say, I've heard a pastor one time say to the music director, uh, you've got to end worship about five minutes earlier next week. I thought, really? You really want him to end worship five minutes? Can he do that? What he meant was, I want the music done so I can get up and preach a little longer. Well, preaching ought to be part of worship also. But more than that, your lives ought to be about worship. Jesus had a conversation with the woman at the well. You remember the story? They talked about water. He mentioned living water. And she said, sir, you, you don't even have anything to dip with. How are you going to give me this water? And he said, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask me for water and I'd give you living water. He says, and he said, go get your husband. And uh, she said, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you've rightly spoken because you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she said, I perceive you're a prophet. Then she started talking about worship. She said, our forefathers told us to worship on this mountain. You people say we're supposed to worship on that mountain. Jesus said, woman, there's a time coming when you're not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain because you don't know God, basically. Worship is about knowing God. And folks, our lives, if you know God, should demonstrate that we know God through our very lives. A.W. Tozier put it this way. He said, what is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery. That majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but what we call our Father which art in heaven. Yes, worship is music, but also worship is your life. I'm going to pick up in chapter 12 and then get into chapter 13 today as we look at this display of worship. Let's read the last couple of verses of chapter 12 together and then uh, we'll pick up in a moment in chapter one, chapter 13, verse 1. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as created things so that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore... Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So the first thought is this therefore sense. And I've told you this before, but throughout Hebrews, you'll hear him teach something and then he'll say therefore. And sometimes he says therefore sense. All he's doing is because that is true, then do this. And really, it's throughout the New Testament. So when you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. You've got to back up and see what he's been talking about before that. But he's talking about this unshakable kingdom. You've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. 
Well, implied in that is there is a kingdom that can be shaken. What's he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of this world. And folks, the kingdom of this world is being shaken. If you're putting your hope on the stuff of this world, look at the world around us. In the Middle East right now, not just in one location, but in multiple locations, there are conflicts, there are wars, there are bombs going off today. And it's tragic to think you could live in a place where you don't know at any moment a siren's going to go off and a bomb's going to land and life may end. But more than that, there's coming a day when this whole earth's going to shake. In fact, Paul puts it this way. He said, there's coming a day when all of the earth and all of its elements will melt with intense heat. What does that mean? If I'm putting my hope in this place, folks, there's no hope. Because this place will not last, because it will be shaken. But we're putting our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It literally means immovable, firm, enduring. Why? Because it's eternal. We're talking about the kingdom of God. His kingdom is not shaken. Regardless of what happens on earth, God is not in heaven shaking. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught by surprise. In fact, we've been told in His Word, these things are coming, these days are coming. And so we heard the song, the first song that they did, it talked about going home. You just recognize this isn't it. There was a, <laughs> there was a sign down in Litchfield a few years ago that said, you know, if, if heaven's not a lot like this. I thought, really? I mean, Litchfield, Pauly's Island's nice. But, but you're going to compare heaven to that? It took God six days to create the earth. He's been working on our home in heaven for 2,000 years. Folks, this is a garbage dump compared to what we have in heaven. This place will shake, <laughs> rattle and roll, and it won't last. So because of that, what do we do then? Well, let's show gratitude. Let's be thankful. Let's come to God and say, thank you, God, that my hope is not here. My hope is in an eternal home. My hope is in an eternal God and a Savior that has forgiven me of my sins. So we show Gratitude. In fact, I would say gratitude is one of the key ingredients in worship. And I've said this before. If you come into church and the music director or the worship leader, the minister of music, whoever's leading says, let's stand up and sing, and the words on the screen or the words in the book are not the attitude of your heart yet, sit down and get your heart right. And just say, God, please remind me of why I'm doing this. I don't want to just mouth words that literally are taking God's name in vain. Do you know you can do that in worship? You can take God's name in vain in worship because to take in vain means to lift up as meaning nothing. And so if all we're doing is mouthing words we don't mean, we're better to not say them. And I've had to do that before. I've just had, you know, you've had a hard day, hard week, whatever. You come in and, you know, you've gone through who knows what just to get to church. <laughs> and maybe you need to stop for a minute and say, God, oh, please. Lord, remind me of who you are and, God, why I would come and worship you today because you are worthy of worship. You're not worship. You're not worthy of some half-hearted effort. You're worthy of all my praise. So it starts with a heart of gratitude. And then he says, we offer to God an acceptable service. That means worship. That's what the word literally means. Acceptable service means acceptable worship. And for you and I to think, how could I offer to God anything that's acceptable? 
Is there anything within me that's not acceptable? Is unacceptable? Yeah, there's everything about me was unacceptable. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. And yet God does give us a prescription for what is acceptable worship. How do we come to him and worship him the way he wants to be worshipped? Well, we come with reverence and awe. I want to stop there a minute. Is that really the way most people are worshiping God today? Is it with reverence and awe or is it just a performance? I want to challenge our thinking about how we worship God. Not just the way we sing songs, but the way we live our lives. The word reverence and fear. Reverence and awe. Where you come before God and just say, oh God. How could I worship you in some trite manner? How could I just go through the motions? How could I just put on a performance? And if you need help getting your mind right, read the next verse. For our God is a consuming fire. I think the reason worship in America has denigrated to a place of performance and just perfunctory going through the motions is because we've lost the sense that God is a consuming fire. Our view of God has eroded and become distorted. Now, to hear that God is a consuming fire is not the kind of statement that as a believer should make me run from God. In fact, it's the kind of statement that makes me run to God. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. And He's worthy of worship. Let me just ask you to check your worship. Has your worship become man-centered? And I will talk about music for a minute. When, when I hear songs that talk so much about me and little about God, is that worship or are we just singing songs? If there's any songwriters in here, if you're, if you're writing a song of worship, focus on the majesty of God and not so much upon us and how, who we are. Now, it's okay to talk about yourself in songs, okay? So the next time you sing a song in church and it has the word us in it, that doesn't mean it's a bad song. But is that the focus of the song? Has worship become man-centered and performance-driven? And so I'll just ask you, how do you view God? When you come to God to worship, how do you view God? Do you view Him as a consuming fire? Do you view Him as all-powerful? If not, we need to change our perspective. Because that's going to impact your worship. Now, we get real practical in the next section. Worship, then, is displayed towards others. And then lastly, you're going to see that it's displayed within us. Let me read just the next few verses. Chapter 13, verses 1 and following through 3. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. So, here's a practical way that we live it out. We're beyond the singing part now. We're talking about how we live our lives. First of all, love other people. Let the love continue. What's implied in that? It's implied that it's already there. So he's not saying you've got to make this up. You've got to do something you haven't been doing before. In fact, back in chapter 6, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews commends them for their love of one another. But what happens when times get tough? Love can grow cold. Especially when times get tough and all you're thinking about is yourself. So, 
Let the love of the brethren continue. Who's he talking? He's talking about other believers. Remember what Jesus said in John's gospel? He said, they will know you're my followers by your love for one another. How are we doing, church? Are we showing love towards one another? And the word love means that it has to come from God. For me to love you the way God expects me to love you has, has got to be supernatural. Because the natural way that we love is just we treat people the way they treat us. Instead of the way we'd like to be treated. How does God love us? God loves us unconditionally. In fact, I love the word, let the love of the brethren continue. Literally, love, brotherly love is the word, Philadelphia. Brotherly love. In fact, the root word really means of the same womb. I call that womb mates. We need to treat each other like we're womb mates. We came from the same womb. And certainly as a Christian, as a child of God, you are that. So just demonstrate that to one another. And if you're struggling loving other people, ask God for help. And here's what I say. God, help me to see them the way you do. Because some people can be annoying. It's hard to love some people. I could talk more about that, but I won't. Let the love of the brethren continue. In fact, parents, doesn't it do your heart good when you see your kids treating each other well? So how do you think God feels about the way we treat each other? Psalms 133 puts it this way. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So brothers and sisters, as we treat each other, God's watching. And I believe it blesses God. Part of our worship to God is the way we treat one another. And secondly, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect, literally, don't disregard or lose out of the mind or neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Definition of strangers, people you don't know. He could be talking about other believers. He could be talking about unbelievers. In the first century, hospitality was, it was incredibly important, not that it's not anymore. But folks, in the first century, for somebody to be in town that perhaps was a believer and didn't have anywhere to stay, for, them, for you not to put them up means they may have to stay on the street because the hotels were few and far between, and some of them were places of ill repute. And so he's just saying very practically, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to people that you don't know. Because some have entertained angels without knowing it. I believe he's referring specifically back to Genesis chapter 18. When Abraham had three men come toward him. He showed hospitality. He found out two of them were angels. And one of them was the Lord himself. You can read that later. So I, I don't think he's making a motivation. You need to, you need to show hospitality because one of them may be an angel. But he says show hospitality to everybody because you never know. You may be showing hospitality to somebody that God has directed specifically to your door. Show hospitality even to strangers. And then remember the unfortunate. Two groups of people that he mentioned. Remember the prisoners, literally a captive, somebody in bonds or shackles. Who's he talking about specifically? Folks, I think he's talking about believers who are being persecuted by being placed in prison for the cause of Christ. Best example we have of that in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. You see Paul writing letters and at times saying, thank you for not forgetting me. Because what happens to us in our everyday life, if you're out of sight, sometimes you can be out of mind. 
So what he's saying is don't neglect the prisoners. The ones in this case, I believe, who are in prison for the cause of Christ. Don't neglect them. In fact, it's amazing to me when Paul writes his letters from prison, sometimes he's chained to a Roman guard when he's writing the letter. I don't hear him talk a lot about selfish things. If you get a letter from me and I'm in prison, here's the way the letter's going to go. Come get me out of prison. All right? But Paul so often is writing encouraging things to other people and thanking them for everything they've ever done for him. I'm going to be saying, bake me a cake and put a file in it. Or get me a good lawyer or something. Get me out of prison. Why? Because it's all about me. No, it shouldn't be. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, not only do we show love to the brethren and hospitality to strangers, but we need to remember there's folks around us that are hurting. Some of them may be in prison. Treat them like you'd want to be treated if you were in their place. And then also treat those who are ill-treated. Literally, those who have been tormented or afflicted or harassed since you are also in the body. What's he talking about? He's basically saying you still have physical needs too. There's still times that you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're lonely, you're depressed, you're hurt physically and emotionally. And so treat other people the way you'd want to be treated if you were in their shoes. Let me just say right there, sometimes we struggle if we go to prison to visit somebody or if we go to a hospital or we go to a funeral home and visit the family and we struggle with, what do I say? Let me just give you a few, three little simple thoughts. Number one is just simply be there. When I was about 18 years old, one of my best friends died in a drowning accident on a youth group trip. My, some of the members of the youth group came to where I was working and told me that Dan had died. And I left work and I went home, but I realized I was in no hurry to get over to his parents' house because I thought, I don't know what to say. I loved him and I loved his family. He had two sisters. He had a mom and a dad. And I just was taking my time getting over there. I was scared. I was just kind of, I'm just, I don't know what to say. I got over there. I saw his sister. She ran and hugged me. And when his parents found out I was there, they said, please have Robert come see us. We're down in the basement. And I learned something important that day. They weren't expecting me to say anything. They weren't expecting me to have some word of wisdom that was going to make it all right. In fact, can I just be real honest? Sometimes in those moments, we say the wrong thing. It might be better if you don't have anything to say to say nothing. Just simply be there. And one of the ways we can be there for people is not just physically, and yes, you need to do that. One of the things that concerns me is after the funeral's over, all the food's gone, the flowers have wilted. Are we still remembering the loved ones that have been left behind that are hurting? And you know what? A phone call, an email, a text, just to say, thought about you today and praying for you. That's one of the ways that we're showing worship to God because we're taking care of the brethren. Another way is direct help. It, it may be financially. It may be that it's a widow who needs help at the home or on the car. It may be you take up an offering to help with a specific need. And third is prayer. And, and I really mean prayer. I don't just mean, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I mean you really pray for them and let them know you pray for them. In fact, as God gives you specific things to pray for them, tell them. Here's where God led me to pray for you today. Just be practical. So it's displayed 
to others, then lastly, it's displayed in ourselves. Let me read the rest of this passage through verse 9. And keep in mind, he's talking about this is our acceptable service. This is how we worship God. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So how do we show up within ourselves? First is marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor. It literally means prized or esteemed. Let me tell you what was going on in their day. There were people in their day saying, don't get married. You're unspiritual if you get married. And Paul even said, listen, if God has gifted you this way, it would be better if you stay like I am right now unmarried. But marriage is an honorable institution. Marriage is an honorable estate. God created marriage. There's a purpose for it. And so in their day, it was people going around saying, well, you're less spiritual if you're married. <laughs> the Bible never said that. In fact, what does the Bible say? It is not good for a man to be alone. Let me just say that again. Men, it's not good for us to be alone. Some of you don't need to leave the house without your wife. Women, thank you for being, as the Bible says, helpers corresponding to us, not second-class people. In fact, the word helper is used more often of God in Scripture than it is of husbands and wives. In fact, he uses it in this passage for God. So anytime somebody says, well, you're just my helper. <laughs> no, it's helper corresponding to. God created woman because man, it wasn't good for man to be alone. Every other animal on the planet had a mate. And Adam had been naming all of them. Do you think Adam finally realized, why isn't there a woman for me? Because none of these animals look good to me. And God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve. He created the woman. And so I just want to say, in this day and age, we hear a lot about marriage in the, in the media. What's God's plan of marriage? First of all, God created marriage. We didn't. This wasn't man's idea. This was God's idea in the Garden of Eden. God created marriage. He created marriage to be between a man and a woman. He created marriage to be between a man and a woman for life. So marriage should be held in honor. Here's how some of the way God honored it by establishing it. Jesus honored it by performing his first miracle at a wedding feast. The Holy Spirit honored it by using marriage as a picture of the church in the New Testament. And the marriage bed should be undefiled. He's talking about sex. The marriage bed should be undefiled. What does that mean? It means sex is a beautiful thing inside of marriage the way God intended it. Now, I've actually heard people say, you know, sex is dirty and you should save it for marriage. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, it's not dirty. 
It was created by God. It's beautiful, and the intimacy that takes place there is good. But some people aren't doing it the way God created it to be done. And so, folks, it means before marriage, you, you wait for marriage. We're not talking about during the engagement period that you have this attitude, well, we're going to get married anyway. That's not God's plan. God's plan is inside of marriage between a man and a woman. So marriage, is to be, marriage bed is to be undefiled. Paul put it this way in Galatians. This is how important this is. In fact, did you notice? Well, we haven't gotten to money yet. But marriage, this is one of the ways Satan's going to attack the church is through marriage. And so the writer of Hebrews is addressing this very importantly. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that I see Paul address, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The only one I can find in Scripture, he says, you just, you run from it. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. So marriage is to be held in honor. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Listen, the world considers adultery irrelevant. They consider purity abnormal. And they consider sex a right. Let's don't let the world have the final say on something God created. Then he talks about your character. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. So the first thing's marriage. The next one's going to be money. One of the ways Satan's going to attack marriages is through money. But it also can attack the church through, through money. Because if you're greedy, Satan can grab a hold of your heart. And the things that are important to you are all going to have dollar signs to them. Now, does God anywhere in Scripture say that money is a sin? No. The root of all evil is money. The Bible doesn't say that. What does it say? The love of money. So your attitude towards money is going to affect your worship. Did you know that? Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Listen, whoever loves money will never have enough. In fact, Ecclesiastes puts it this way. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And what you do is you be content with what you have. What's one thing we have? As a child of God, we have Jesus. If we don't have another thing, learn to be contentment, learn to be content with that in fact the word content the root word means to be enough folks the good thing the good news is god blesses us with way more than we need or want or or, or need (laughs) maybe not what we want he's blessed us but you know the truth if all he ever did for us was save us on the cross that's enough and you'll never be content until that becomes enough learn contentment there's an ancient story about a king that had a particular illness, a malady, and a wise, some of his doctors came to him, some of the wise men came to him and said, you're only going to be healed if you can put on the shirt of a contented man. So he sent all of his servants out, go find me the shirt of a contented man. They came back and said, we can't find a contented man. He said, then scout, go outside the realm of the kingdom. They came back to him and said, we have finally found a contented man, but he doesn't have a shirt. 
Well, folks, if your contentment's in stuff, you'll never be contented. Why? Because there's always more stuff to have. If you can finally be content, even if you have nothing, you've found the secret of contentment. Our contentment, our enough is in Jesus. Being content with what you have. Why? Because he has said, I will never desert you or forsake you. Folks, isn't that good news? God will never desert us, literally to loosen, let up, or slacken. He will never forsake, literally mean to leave behind in some place. God's not going anywhere. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to let go of his grip on you. And so for the writer of Hebrews to say to the church that he's writing to, listen, when the world shakes around you and the stuff you have is gone and some of you are put in prison and others of you are beaten, keep this in mind. You have Jesus. And he's made a promise to you that one day he's coming back to get you and he will, you will spend eternity with him in heaven. Now, if that doesn't sound like good news to you, you need to work on your contenter muscle. He won't desert us. He won't forsake us. In fact, we can confidently say the Lord is my, my helper. Let me just ask you, do you really believe that God's good? Do you really believe that God's good? You know what? He's really better than we think he is. Because that's going to determine your confidence. And that's going to determine whether we're afraid or not. I don't have to be afraid. What can man do to me? What's the worst thing that man can do? Well, kill me. Actually, worse than that is like make me hurt while they're killing me. I've got a trip planned to the Holy Land. People said, are you crazy? Well, opinions vary. First time I ever went to the Holy Land, people said, aren't you afraid of being blown up? I said, no, I'm afraid of being captured and tortured. Blow me up. You know, just get it over in a hurry. The way things are looking, we may not get to go to the Holy Land this year. But what can man do to me? It's better that you fear God than that you fear anything about man. And then the last thing, or two more things. He says, remember those who led you. He's probably talking about the people that started the church, and he's talking about their witness that they have left behind. Remember those who have led you. And I would just say that to you personally and practically. Remember those folks that have gone on before you. Whether it was a preacher, a youth minister, a music leader, a worship pastor, a friend, a Sunday school teacher, a school teacher, a coach. Somebody that left a godly pattern for you to follow, never forget. In fact, the thing to forget are the people that are trying to carry you away. Do not be carried away by various and strange teachings. Paul put it this way in Galatians. He says, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'm almost out of time, but hear this. The Bible tells us in the last days there's going to be false teachers that arise. And folks, some of them are going to look so likable and persuasive. And so how do we distinguish what's right and what's wrong? You have to come back to God's Word. False teaching is anything in contrary to this word. In fact, Paul put it this way in the next verse of Galatians, verse 8. He said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul had been faithful in preaching the gospel to them, but he said, just in case you missed it, if I come to you with something other than what's in God's word, the truth of God, then I need to be accursed. Men and women, we need to become more discerning 
about the preachers that we listen to because some of them are on television and they have large congregations but their theology is weak. Somebody asked me one time about very popular on TV. He said, what do you think about his theology? I said, I don't hear him say much theological. Be careful about false teaching. Don't be led astray, literally seduced. Don't be seduced with somebody who says the wrong thing, but they say it real well. But instead, be strengthened by grace, not by foods. What's he talking about there? It's lunchtime. What's he talking about? Should we not eat? Well, what were the Jews famous for? They had dietary laws. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land with me, you'll still see some of the dietary laws of the Jews. You can have butter with breakfast, but you can't have butter at night because you can't have butter and meat at the same meal. I'm not making fun of them for that, but Peter was a classic example of somebody who came to God and said, no, I can't eat anything that's unclean. What did God do? God gave him a vision of everything and said, go eat. And Peter's like, I can't do that. God said, what I've declared clean, don't let anybody else call it unclean. That's good news. We can eat shrimp and catfish and stuff like that. They couldn't eat any old pork. Anybody going to eat barbecue for lunch? Well, if you go with me to the Holy Land, you're not eating barbecue. Probably not going to eat grits either, but you're certainly not going to get barbecue. But he says, through which those who were occupied were not benefited. In other words, some people have placed all their hope in the fact that I've kept the dietary law. But it hadn't benefited them. I hadn't gotten them closer to God at all. It was just another rule that they thought, maybe if I keep this one, God will be pleased with me. And God's already said through, through Acts chapter 5 to Peter. Actually, it's not Acts chapter 5. It's in Acts. Listen, what I've declared clean. Don't, don't be making up other laws about it. I think there's a real reason for some of those laws in the Old Testament. They don't exist anymore. So don't get caught up about that. So, so what? Here's my question as we leave today. Will you worship this week? I'm not talking about are you going to put a CD in or a song on your iPod and sing along. That's helpful. I encourage you to do that. But will you worship this week? Will you display to the world around you this week that our God is a consuming fire? Will you display by the way you live your life at school or at the job or in your home or your neighborhood or wherever you go, will you be a walking display of who God really is? Let's pray together. Father, we need help on that. So, God, it's my prayer that as we walk out the doors and we walk into Monday and Tuesday this week, there may not be any musical accompaniment, but, Lord, I pray our lives would be worshipped directed to you and because of you so lord help us because you're worthy thank you in jesus name amen